0: degenerate angels ladies and gentlemen and those who identify as neither god damn am i excited to be here with you this week for another manic monday an episode of tales of taboo for anyone new to me and my podcast welcome to what can only be described as the world's greatest double-decker bus tour of hell. My name is Ali Weiss. I am a native New York Z-list entertainer with distinctly large eyebrows an incredibly slow metabolism and an all-consuming obsession with all things dark, dirty, and disapproved of by polite society. This guy who broke my heart once said that I'm a journalist reporting live from the gutter. And while obviously I'd prefer a filming location that's a little more like sanitary, he's not entirely wrong. Uh, It is and always has been my belief that those who are brave enough to tread off the beaten path come back with the most poignant wisdom and valuable life lessons to share. Usually, each episode of this show is composed of anonymous submissions about a particular topic or experience from you guys, my gorgeous listeners. But every once in a while, my strange, slightly degenerate life will lead me to someone so interesting that I have no choice but to stand and then interview them. So that's exactly what we're doing this week. Jason Surin, Suran? Saran, 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 however you want to interpret it, Jason, I love you, I'm sorry, is a New York-based, nationally recognized magician, mentalist, and master of psychological illusions. That's right. He doesn't just shuffle cards. He reads fucking minds. He and his work have been shown off everywhere from Sapphire Strip Club to Yale University and the literal effing United States Pentagon. And it was truly an honor to have him in my studio to talk about why magic is actually not lame and a super important art form, especially in an age where we've never felt more disconnected from one another. After listening to this episode, don't forget to go to my IGTV and watch him successfully read my mind. (laughs) I hope you guys enjoy. Off we go. I feel like people deserve to know the backstory of how we met because it's (laughs) good. So we were at the box, and for those of you listening who don't live in New York or London or just Aren't club rats? the The box is a nightclub, but it's unique because I would describe it as like half burlesque circus show, half nightclub. So people go there to get fucked up, but they also go there to be shocked and awed. Um, so they were having a party for their thirteenth anniversary, which they called their bar mitzvah, and I was there with two friends who are both sex workers, and a great time. And I wanted to introduce them to each other. And we met Jason, who was there doing card tricks in the crowd. And, you know, somehow we all came together. And one of my friends, who's a stripper, mentioned to you that she was a stripper at Sapphire. <laughs> and you said the funniest thing. I actually wrote it down on my phone and I found it in my notes so that I could read it out here.
1: I don't remember this. Oh, my what God. It I was say? so good. Oh you God.
0: go to her. You go, quote. There's no place less conducive to magic than Sapphire 39 on a Sunday night, especially since I'm a mind reader. No one there wants to have their mind read. It's like, sir, think about your 10-year-old daughter.
1: (laughs) Well, you're leaving out the fact that I worked at Sapphire as well. (laughs) That's, doing,
0: the, that's the key to why I doing, said Doing Well, that. that's, that's what I said. Less conducive to magic. So yeah. going, going around Sapphire, yeah. doing card tricks, doing your uh. mentalist tricks. And like, of course, I knew in that moment I was obsessed with you. A, you were funny. B, you, you worked in a strip club as a magician. I was like, this is the most fascinating yeah. person yeah, alive. And, and now- We're here. Now we're here. Oh, my God. But I forgot an important step. The step in between was that you were hired to work the birthday party of one of my friends who was at the box that night. That I was. And it was on a very fancy yacht Mm -hmm. that was paid for by one of her clients who was there having a meltdown.
1: Which I... Nobody told me that. So I was just trying to read the dynamic of what was going
0: on. It was a shit show and a half. The most glamorous shit show anyone's ever seen. Full catering. We're all on mushrooms. I was so high on mushrooms. And um, you performed there, like in the middle of New York Harbor. And that was also amazing. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like, thank you for coming this far with me because we've been in various questionable environments together. We've been
1: in so few spaces together and yet they've all been fascinating.
0: (laughs) They've all been so fascinating. And today is going to be no different. Fantastic. Let's get right into it. Okay. So I obviously did some research on you despite knowing you I also did a little bit of research to see what kind of info was out there and I stumbled across a really interesting nugget which was that you first got into magic when you were 18 and it was to impress a girl is this correct
1: who are your sources an interview that you did I haven't told that story probably in a couple of years but yes I when I was in college I was dating a girl whose dad did magic yes like famously or as no, a hobby? No, 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 no. He, I mean, he was established, but he had a day job. He, you know, there's yeah. a lot of people in that world who, you know, for whom it's a passion and, yes. a, and a hobby, you yes. know, and have a an, an actual grown-up job. Yes. Um, he was a, a psychiatrist, actually. I think. And <laughs> a
0: psychiatrist ha- and a magician. Let's unpack that. Yeah, I time. don't know if we have enough time for that.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so he took us to lunch one day, and he did uh, just kind of like miracle after miracle for me. And I thought, you know, what all women really want a guy with their dad's weird fucking hobby. <laughs> so I started learning magic and then she broke up with me cuz good for her. Yeah. But I I stayed very very sort of interested in in whatever the hell this weird art form was. Yeah,
0: and I was going to say when I just when I read that that you had picked up magic to impress a woman, I was like, I think this is the first and only time I'm going to hear this narrative. Picking up magic to
1: impress a woman. I I think you'd be shocked by how often young men fall into that logic. I mean, it, it, it's not a good thing. Certainly, there was like definitely a era of online magic in like the mid to late two thousands where that was like heavily marketed. Yeah, to, yeah. You know, to, to the exclusion of young women who, who you know might have otherwise become very interested in magic. Yeah, so like, yeah. it's definitely a bad thing. But <laughs> I see a
0: really interesting. Pickup tactic here, though. You know, you tell people that you're a mentalist, and then you can sit there and read their minds and be like, "I can tell that you want to go out with me. I can literally see it." Well, it's in not just—it's not
1: just, you know, limited to that. The truth is, it works on—it ma- works on everybody. It works on right? everybody. Yeah. Like, the thing about course. magic is, it's a social lubricant, yes. right? And so, how you want how you choose to use that is yes. kind of up to you and your priorities. Yeah. But it's a social lubricant because, like, I-, I always say, deep down, I think everybody loves magic and everybody hates magicians. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: so there's that. <laughs>
1: There's always it's that push true. and
0: pull. It's true. Okay, so obviously there are a lot of components to what you do. I find them all equally fascinating. But when the average person thinks of a magician, they mm. tend to focus on card tricks or, you know, the smaller scale party tricks. Now, I'm sorry if this person happens to be one of your professional rivals, but I need to bring him up. So Derek Delgadio,
1: Amazing.
0: I obsessed with him i watched his one-man show on hulu and he had this whole portion of the show that was talking about how he learned how to manage cards from like card sharks and degenerates Mm -hmm. and like people who worked in casinos whose job it was to make sure that the house won every time i would love to know not only like how you Learned to maneuver around a card deck, but how you really became a master because there's like a line that you need to cross between being someone who's impressive with cards and people who can leave your jaw on the floor. So, mm-hmm. who taught you? Did you have a really interesting mentor, or is it all thanks to
1: you? Definitely not all thanks to me. I was I was extremely lucky, and first of all, good shout out to Derek because I mean, what Derek did with uh, then everybody should watch it in and of it's itself. On so Hulu. moving. Yeah. Um, you know, arguably was the most important thing that Magic's produced in a hundred years. Yeah. So, you know, all all credit in the world to yeah. Yay yeah. for Derek! Cla- clappity Yay clappity for Derek! Because I mean, he really pushed the art forward with that uh, show. But I was very very lucky because my first exposure to magic outside of you know my ex girlfriend's father <laughs> was I I was trying to. Basically, find other people in the city who were into this because I was like kind of you know just looking online and like watching YouTube videos and I was like I kind of want to get into this, and so I uh, went to see if I was at NYU at the time to see if NYU had a magic club and I found a Facebook group with a um, uh, a single member in it (laughs) and his name was Eli Bosnick he'd graduated the year before (laughs) me uh, before I'd even looked yeah he's like five years older than me and I messaged him and he was like oh yeah that club never really existed but. Uh, you know come meet me I, I'm the house manager or something at the at this magic show downtown yeah. called the, the Monday Night Magic mm-hmm. which was at the player is is still at the players theater uh, on McDougal Street and so I went there on a Monday night to go meet him I thought you know okay I'll see the show whatever and he wasn't there he was like an hour and a half late and the guy Love who it. ran the show this kind of gruff producer um, <laughs> named Michael who was you know if you picture like an old timey theater producer, mm-hmm. you know, it was literally mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Sees me loitering in the lobby and it goes, you know, either stuff a program or get the hell out of my theater. And literally, <laughs> like like an old Hollywood kind of story, you know, throws me a box of 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 playbills to stuff leaflets. Oh my God, and so you became the usher. I became an usher literally that day. And so I kept coming back every Monday night wow. and the, you know, they was like, they paid you like seven bucks or something. But for me, the joy of it was at the end of every show all the crew and the magicians would go out to dinner afterwards at the yes. di- Washington Street Diner up right on the park. And I would get to watch, like, because some of the best magicians in the city would come through, not only to perform in the show, but sometimes just to watch each other. Right? Yeah. I mean, you would get, you know, pe- names you'd recognize, you know, like would come occasionally through because the cast rotated every week. And yeah. I would just get to sit there watching them talk about fire breathing and pickpocketing and card tricks and coin tricks. of course, What ended up kind of winning me over, which was mentalism and psychological illusions and juggling and everything you could imagine because it was kind of a variety-esque show. Yeah. And so that was really my first education, but I was really lucky in that I was getting exposed to really, really, really good performers really early on.
0: Yeah, just by almost like a stroke of luck that you were just in the right place at the right time. Okay, so you you really learned how to master the card deck by sitting in a New York diner and what, observing. Oh, 100%, because what would happen so is- That's so awesome, Jason. What a good story. Yeah,
1: it was it was the best. And you'd have to kind of earn it a little bit, but it was also a pretty giving community. And yeah. so if you expressed interest, somebody would show you something. And then if you came back the next week and you could do that something, then you'd get a little something more, Sick. you know? And you'd earn the secrets a little by little. And that was, um, you know- that, that that's a kind of thing that almost doesn't exist anymore with yeah. the proliferation of, of, of the internet and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, for me, it, it felt very much like an old timey, you know, showbiz kind of story.
0: Oh, yeah. And also like a secret society that you managed to get yourself into, which a little I feel bit. like is still the world By that stuffing you live in leaflets, now. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter how you got there. Yeah, it, matter. it matters how you stayed.
1: Exactly. So
0: then this is kind of a weird question, but how did you find out that you had what it took to be a mentalist? Because you have to admit that that concept, just like service level on paper, it almost sounds a little sociopathic. Like, What kind of person has what it takes to manipulate people into like getting their mind read in this showmanshipy way? And it, it, I don't know this about you, but it leads me to believe that whether or not you studied psychology in any way, you must have some sort of understanding of human psychology and how to engage with people in an effective way, because so much of mentalism is understanding how to best communicate with people. Mm. So when were you like, "This is something I can do, and I can do it well
1: i i think I think I always had the gene for it, yeah. I, so when I started experimenting with different kinds of magic and then I kind of started dabbling in mentalism it was a very quick realization of like this is for me. Yeah, this works. Cuz I think I always had a knack for it. Um and if you ever met my mom, you'd understand because my mom is my mom's like that too. My mom can my mom can like win over and my mom is the best schmoozer. Uh, yeah. For our non-Jewish listeners, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to define that word. Make a Jewish friend, but
0: um, a, a, sh- a schmoozer is just somebody who like really knows how to work, work a crowd, work a crowd work and like people. make that crowd warm to you very quickly. Yeah, it's it's yes. not
1: it's not even necessarily a negative thing or like a kind of grimy thing. Like my mom can just win over anybody, yeah. and I watched her do that my whole childhood, and I I think I inherited that from her but yeah. like, I was always. I was always a little bit, as she would put it, a charmer. Yeah, you know, yeah, which, yeah. which is probably the nicer way of putting it. Yeah. But but um, mentalism relies on that a lot more than other things, right? So if you're doing, right, there's forms of magic that are entirely silent. Yeah, right. There's manipulation acts, for example, where you're producing, you know, balls and and cards from the tips of your fingers, and it's all set to music, and it's smoky and it's mysterious, but you're not, you know, you're you're verbally doing nothing, right? You're, right. you're often set to not. Right, it's often a silent act. Whereas mentalism is entirely about your performance and it's entirely about scripting and it's entirely about sort of being able to lead somebody down the garden path to the outcome that you're you're trying to create for them. Right. And I was a theater student, so that came very intuitively uh, to me too. Okay. I, was a, I was already an actor at that, that makes point. Sense. And so yeah, I, I think for me there was something really, really intuitive about, okay, how do you How do you take somebody that's starting from this adversarial position because you're telling them you're going to read their mind, but then put them in a position where they desperately want it to succeed? Right. Because that's the only way that kind of thing works is when – when they're on your side as well. And so that was, I think the thing that really appealed to me was I I really liked figuring that out.
0: So for people listening who might be unfamiliar, can you just quickly like explain what the difference is between a mentalist and like a psychic or a palm reader, you know, because I think that what people fail to understand is like how much theatrical skill is required in order to do what you do versus, like, being one of those people who are on the corner of West 4th Street with, like, a, a psychic booth who have been there for right. 30 years.
1: Um, well, it's actually interesting. Cause so you reference Derek sort of learning from, you know, how to manipulate a deck of cards from degenerate gambling, right. you know, yeah. hustlers. Um whereas most of mentalism comes from the psychic and mediumship world and from the fortune telling ah. right. It 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 owes a tremendous amount of its lineage to that, not to necessarily magic history. Um, okay. In fact, they didn't really start intersecting until the mid twentieth century, right? They they were very different branches of of, of not magic but of performance. Fascinating. Um, yeah. And so for me, the main difference is honesty and clarity i suppose because when you're performing as a mentalist you're sort of upfront saying i don't have at least in my opinion there's certainly debate in the community but i would say that that requires you to on some level tell your audience you are not psychic right you are not in possession of any kind of supernatural ability the moment you're doing that you're not you're not surviving on your talent or your skill as a showman you're surviving on them believing a lie yes right and if they didn't believe that lie, they'd have zero interest. Yes. So for me, that's artistically uninteresting. If the only reason people are enjoying your show is because they believe a lie you've told them, I don't know that you've you know accomplished something artistically so much as pulled one over on them.
0: Yes. And that leads me to my next question, which is how do you walk that line between – Producing a theatrical experience and like, honestly, a very human experience when you successfully read someone's mind because it encourages them to be vulnerable and it gives them the spotlight for vulnerability that they wouldn't necessarily have in day to day life being kind of seen and understood by a stranger like that. Mm. But knowing that in order to get to that point, it does require a lot of mastery of manipulation so has that ever kind of created like a, a moral back and forth for you or do you see it as just being more simple than that
1: no it's a I mean there's a constant tension between the two right because what you want as an artist in any capacity is an authentic right moment right and how do you have authenticity when you're starting from deception right and when there's all this stuff you can't tell the audience and when there's all these misleading premises and hidden suggestions and you know sort of false narratives you're trying to 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 give them to increase the experience. And for me it's it's about trying to just get out of the way of all that early you know at the start of my show I always tell my audience you know that everything I do is a combination of you know multiple things psychology sleight of hand deception you know, bullshit (laughs) basically whatever tool I need to get the result. Yeah. And my job is to make it impossible for you to know where one starts and the other begins and ends. And then now that that's out of the way, let you have that moment of vulnerability on stage because the reality is if I bring somebody up and, you know, I ask them to focus on a memory that really means something to them with somebody they love and I'm able to tell them the name of that person and in front of 100 people describe that memory that means so much to them. It doesn't really matter how I figured it out. It doesn't really matter how I gained that information. That moment is still going to be genuine. That is still a moment of vulnerability because they're sharing something authentic with with all of us. And that's what's interesting to me about mentalism.
0: And I, I think that you also touched on something that's really important, which is kind of the nucleus of why I wanted to have this conversation with you, which is, I find it really fascinating that people are so like, at least in the beginning, magic averse. And it's like you said, people like love magic, but they hate magicians. There's always this like animosity and hostility towards magicians i mean way more than you see towards apparently in this room <laughs> no there's zero you know i love everything what you do i'm just be you know i'm being honest don't absolutely no i <sighs>
1: you're, you're you're hitting it on the head okay for sure. so
0: so this is the thing right like I, I just think that the whole dynamic not even just with magic or mentalism but even if you look at the dynamic of a stand-up comedy club people pay to go to a stand-up comedy club to laugh mm-hmm. they pay for whoever goes on stage to solicit a positive reaction in them. And a lot of that has to do with audience members seeing themselves in the comedian, hearing themselves in the story. So I always think to myself, why are people so skeptical the second a, a comedian steps on stage and for the first 45 seconds at least that they're there, why is it so hard to break that wall down when fundamentally you want it to be a successful collaboration? And and the only... The only explanation I can really think of, and I want your POV, is like it's almost this fight for control where, like, yes, we we go into these environments knowing that a stand-up comedian's monologue is scripted and memorized. We go into a show with you knowing that in order to execute magic, everything kind of needs to be in its place and it's like a tightly run ship. It's it's that willing suspension of disbelief. But We go there knowing that by having that willing suspension of disbelief, we're going to be given a really real, powerful, authentic emotional experience, some sort of release, whether that's being shocked and awed, being removed from reality or having like a really big belly laugh, peeing yourself from laughing so hard. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like, why do audiences have that resistance? Why are they so hesitant to let you in?
1: Would you give up control to somebody you don't trust yet? But I'm but I'm paying to come and see you. But you don't trust that person fully yet. I I think it's got to do with trust and power, right? Because when when somebody's got you belly laughing, right? When a when a a magician or a mystery performer, you know, sort of to encompass all the different kinds of magic. Yeah. When they've got you in that state of astonishment, right? Yeah you're a little powerless, right? Like you're you're in an involuntary oh, totally. state of reaction. And when you first step foot into that comedy club, you might want to laugh. You might want to have a great time. But like I think a lot of that skepticism is actually just not trusting that performer yet, right? Like you see that moment all the time if you go to comedy clubs where they win you over. And you see it in the magic shows too, if you go to those. Yeah. You can see and feel the moment after the first joke that really oh little bit more it's a little bit a snap right? A switch. Because a the audience going, okay, we audience in okay, we okay, right? Like. Okay, he knows what he's doing mm-hmm. or she knows what they're she's doing, right? Like there's this moment of okay, I can let go of the ropes now because I know that this person knows how to steer the ship, mm-hmm. right? Um you know, so I I I think I think that's I I think that's what it is. I mean, and then there's the ego aspect, right? There's certainly people of course. There's, there's there's people who are never going to give up that control willingly because they think it's a it's a reflection on their, you know, you know, uh, respect or on on their intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so there's people who will always push back, but those are the assholes, right. right? Like, you don't. I don't think that's really what you're asking about. I think you're asking more, and masse, why why audiences come in a little bit. Skeptical to those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. And I just, I find it particularly interesting because it's not like you're some pickup artist on the street being like, hey, want to see a trick? It's like these people are spending good money to come and see you live or come to your Zoom show or like however they're choosing to engage with you. And you would assume that if these people are spending money to come and see your show, I totally hear your point. But it's also
1: like. Well, there's a second aspect to it. Yeah. Which is. The cultural position of magic in the United States—the thing you're describing—doesn't exist in Spain, for example. Yeah, Spain has a, a really sort of um, a prestigious place for magic in its mm. artistic scene. Magic, magic's very respected there. Um, so you know there are magic theaters. Um, you know audiences go sort of educated on magic. You know so they they know as much about magic as they do about ballet or whatever, right? right. Like they They they've seen a lot of it. Um, and so I think part of that's the cultural position that magic has in in, in the U.S. where it's kind of the butt of the joke. And Why that's... is that? Why is it the butt of the joke? So it's that's, that's a little harder to answer, but I think it goes to a couple of different factors. Yeah. The first is that magic is one of the only art forms you can walk into a store uh, and buy your art and then perform it the next hour, right? And so that's yeah. really diluted the quality of magic, right? Yeah. The fact that... The fact that there's a um, okayness in magic to just doing other people's material, right? And that and your uncle can kind of be a magician, right, mm-hmm. with very little effort, and that you can sort of just buy the trick, and that's because. Magic's a little bit like a jack in the box, right? Like, as long as there's candy at the end, everybody goes. Right? As long as the weasel <laughs> <Right>. goes pop. <laughs> yeah. it, nobody's really like, yeah, but are they an artist? Like, you know, did, did the weasel oh think God, about his craft? You're so right. <laughs> right? And so it's very easy to be a mediocre magician and still impress people in a way that you couldn't be if you were a comic. Yeah. Um, so the second part of that uh, has to do with the culture in magic. Which is that for a very long time, it was not encouraged to share. It was not encouraged Mm. to bring in new people. It was not encouraged to to develop younger artists, right? And so there is not a culture – there was not a culture of sharing. And what that meant is that there were very few good magicians. Right. And the good ones were very often not sharing – what they knew with anyone outside of a very small circle of apprentices, but it means that most people only were able to learn from books or DVDs or YouTube videos, right? right. And so how do you cultivate a generation of better artists when you're constantly going, no, you don't deserve it? it's so exclusive. Right, nobody nobody does that in any other art form. If you want to learn the violin, you can just like find a violin teacher. teacher, but it's much harder to do that with, or at least it was much harder to do that with magic until, you know, uh, recently, and part of the reason Spain is has a different culture is there's a uh, uh, sort of a world-renowned and revered magician there named Juan Tamariz, who is kind of considered the godfather, you know, or le- I-, I should say, probably the most revered living magician among magicians in the entire world. Oh
0: shit! And, I need
1: to go to Spain. Yeah, absolutely. Him. And Juan started the Spanish School of Magic, which was very heavily rooted in this belief that anyone with an interest in magic deserved a chance to learn it. Right, and so it was much more generous with it, with knowledge. And so that cultivates a different kind of culture, you know? Yeah,
0: it's interesting, you know, because magic is ugh, seen as this thing that's like kind of a joke or if you're selecting between art forms, it's wrongly not seen as being as prestigious as other forms. I would almost think that the magic community would be warm and open towards somebody who like passionately expresses an interest in joining it would almost be like oh you want to come and join like our band of outsiders like i would think that there would be more of a warm welcome there but i also do understand that people are so possessive over their tricks which they've taken like years to hone
1: yeah it i i think it's just a matter of like what what are you prioritizing right the art or 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 your i mean i shouldn't say i don't know that i even fully believe that i i i don't know i don't know how that attitude got so heavily cultivated Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it certainly goes back to the 1800s and a time period when it was just passed down person to person and you couldn't even buy a magic book, right, uh, or a magic kit, right? That didn't exist in the mid-1800s, yeah. right? That comes, you know, a couple decades later. And so I I think I think there's a belief in magic that the secret is what matters, mm-hmm. right? And so we have to protect the secret at all costs. right? If the secret gets out, our heads will explode and, you know not not only does that seem to me to be untrue but it i think it's demonstrably untrue because there are so many secrets you could easily find now if you just googled you know go to youtube after a, a Oh magic my god show, right? i have
0: fallen into many youtube holes when i'm stoned being like david blaine revealed you and know And has it ruined
1: david blaine for you? No there you go. Not
0: at all. And I was going to ask you about that. I was going to point blank ask, do you think if audiences knew how tricks were done, it would stop them from, want- from wanting to see those tricks done
1: super well anyway? So here's my theory about that. Okay. For some, yes. For some, no. But my theory is this. The only people for whom it would it would ruin it are the people who aren't going to look it up. Right. Because the people who it would ruin it for are the people who care... Um. You know, who find the trick more interesting than the secret. Right. Right? And so for them to find out the secret would be like a bummer. Right. But that person isn't going to go on YouTube and spend three hours looking it up. They don't give a fuck. David
0: Blaine walks on water. Like, oh my God. That person's just like,
1: you know, like, oh, cool. There's a a thing on my hand. Like, they they just want to enjoy it. Yeah. The people for whom the secret is more interesting, right, they're going to go look it up, but if they took that trouble to look it up, I think there's a very good chance that for them it will increase their appreciation of what they yes. saw and may lead to them becoming a magician or may lead to them having one on their podcast, right? right. Like it increases you know, I I think the love and the passion for the art form. So yeah. I I just don't you know, you you don't want those secrets finding their way to people who don't want to find them. Yes. But I don't know That it's made a dent in, in, if anything, I think there's more magic right now and more appreciation for it than there's ever been in the United States. So, you know, I, I don't know how you arrive at the conclusion that that's hurt us.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. So I I keep saying it's interesting, but seriously, this whole conversation is so interesting. (laughs) I, I've always loved magic and I've just, what I've loved about it is it's this opportunity to give up control as we've been talking about, and also just, you know, have this kind of escape from reality. Like reality sucks, man. Like there's something that's like so beautiful about willing, willingly going down this path of something that like you know in theory isn't real, but it solicits a very real emotional response in you. I've said that already, but that push and pull is something that you can't really find in that many corners of life. And and it's the same reason I love immersive theater. And we'll talk about immersive theater because you've put on some immersive theater shows. But I'm such a slut for immersive theater because you're basically, you pay for a ticket, which is paying for entry into this world that like you know is not real, but because you know it's not real, you can allow yourself to just go and whatever happens, happens. But the more that I started going to magic shows, the more I had an appreciation for the technical theatricality of the people who were on stage. And I started to be in awe of magicians and of performers and at that point i was like okay i actually am interested in knowing how they make these executions because i'm gonna keep going back and watching them anyway i don't care if i know how they do it in fact i would like to pay more attention to how well they manipulate the stage and how well they manipulate an audience rather than like oh i know that he's like shuffling this card you know what i'm saying 100 percent yeah yeah
1: what was the question? <laughs> I don't know. I actually, I was hoping that you would guide me. But I, I think I, I think I get what you're, what you're getting at, though. But clarify. Anyway. <laughs> you know what?
0: Let's just, let's just say that was great. That that was that was That's insightful. The that That's was your yeah. That was it. You know, let's let's close the curtain for intermission. There, no, not intermission, just the next scene. So I wrote down when I was stalking you in your past interviews online. A writer said something that was really interesting about you in a profile, and I wrote down this quote as well, which was. Many mentalists guess what you're thinking. Jason thinks what you're guessing. Can you explain what this means?
1: Yeah. Um, I so there's a, a really wonderful magician named Jamie Ian Swiss who's written a lot of of theory. People I think would be surprised by how much theory there is in in the magic literature. You know, mm-hmm. not not books of tricks, but you know, just us talking about our craft. Mm-hmm. And you know, Jamie was once um, uh, wrote something uh to the effect i hope i'm not misquoting that the difference between mental magic and mentalism right a trick with mind rating versus mentalism is that mental magic is you know the revelation of a proper noun it's me going you know you're thinking the word blue mentalism is the revelation of the process of thinking right it's making somebody really feel not like you just know what they're thinking but you know how they're thinking, yeah, right. And so I, 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 I would like to think maybe that's what they, that writer was getting at. Is that I, I, I strive in my shows to really give people the sensation that I, I'm not just gonna reveal what they're thinking at the end of this, but we're gonna go on this like journey together psychologically. Yeah. Because otherwise, it, it's very boring, right? It's a, it's a, If you think about it, if if all you're focused on is sort of delivering them that little nugget at the end of you know your card is the 3 of clubs then you're going to end up with a whole lot of boring procedure for a very yes. for for a, a singular 2 seconds of payoff yes so the the challenge with mentalism is how do you make the rest of it interesting right how do you make the process compelling how do you make you know the entire journey as exciting as that little moment of as sugar and candy at the end. Exactly. Yes.
0: And as I mentioned before, so much of what you do, it's obviously theatricality, but it's also very psychologically oriented. So now that I know that you have a theater background, this makes a lot of sense to me because I also went to theater school and there's there's so much that you learn there. Like, you know, we take script analysis classes and and you learn like, what to identify in the subtext, we call it, that can reveal what a character is actually thinking. So if you apply that concept to real life, how how do you determine the subtext of one of your I, I i we i guess we could call them audience members like if you do you kind of go down that process where like you'll say thir- certain things to them and then you'll see if their eyes start darting in certain directions or if like the corner of their mouth goes in a certain way i, I think that this is actually i don't want to ruin any of your tricks but it, it's a very practical application to real life, too, because there's always discussion about, like, how do you catch a liar? And, like, you know, how how do you see if someone is not being straight with you in a conversation? Are these psychological ticks just, like,
1: right in front of us and we don't know what to look for? I actually think we often do know what to look for. Um, I think we often don't trust that sort of instinct. But I, I think we we do possess a very, very finely tuned sense of when somebody's comfortable versus uncomfortable. And so... I try to always reduce it to that. You know what I mean? I can't tell from your eye movement whether you're thinking red or green, right? <laughs> there's a lot of junk science. There's a lot of pop science in in, in in that stuff that gets, you know, appropriated into mentalism and gets, you know, I, I, I try to stay somewhat away from that, at least, you know, where I think it's particularly, you know, harmful or stupid. Yeah. But... I do think that it's very easy to reduce things to a binary to be able to tell like okay is this person responding to what i'm saying positively or negatively right do they seem really intrigued by what i'm saying or do they are they grimacing right are they kind of confused right have i lost their engagement have i gained more of their engagement and so I rely on a lot of that, right? I try to reduce things to binaries as often as I can yeah. when I'm working with an audience member because that I can always tell. I can, yeah. always, I can always tell whether I'm on the right path or the wrong path.
0: And has that just been cultivated in time just by doing shows over and over again? Or did you kind yeah. of enter this world with like a, like a psychological guidebook of what to look
1: for? Well, there, there's tons of those. And then there's also lots of methods that you can rely on when that stuff fails. Right, and so I'm never going in just relying on psychology. I'm never going in just relying on sleight of hand. Right, I've always got backups for backups for backups for backups, you know. And because you don't know where the hell this trick is going, yeah, it means I can I can pivot at a moment's notice. Yes, if I see something's not working, okay, the thing I was hoping you'd say isn't the thing you said. No worries, it's gonna appear in a walnut at the end of this. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I'll figure it out. Um you know so there's always you know if you're a if you're a professional and you're a performer and you do this often you just start to you know you just start to know what you need to get to get the job done
0: yeah know? and so you it, bring
1: all the tools you can
0: it sounds to me like it's almost uh you, you assemble like a choose your own adventure book in your head and you're like all right this person may go down this path and it will lead to here and so we'll need to like avert this in this way or they may say this and then we'll go down this path like very hundred oh,
1: percent and there's things in my shows that are yeah you know that, that that when they hit they look like miracles yeah but if they don't hit you're never gonna fucking know about it you'll never know <laughs> you know it's <laughs> you know, so like good. a shot a shot that i can take that if it doesn't pay off pfft, it's, right. It's dust in the wind, but if it hits, yeah. you're going to tell your grandchildren yeah, about that. Yeah, moment, yeah, yeah. You know?
0: Absolute jaw dropper. Wow, so so much of preparing for a magic show is just like
1: crisis control before oh, anything even of, happens. That's I've never heard a better description of magic. Magic is crisis, crisis control. control. It is all you know, Pendelet has a quote about like if you it, you know, if you knew how magic worked, you'd realize every trick is quite <laughs> literally hanging by a thread, yeah. right? Like it is so precipitous it, it could go wrong at any any moment yeah you know? and so you're just trying to constantly plan for like all contingencies just like standing there thinking to yourself god please don't turn that card over don't look <laughs> at the back of that card don't look at the back of that card don't look at the back so of that
0: are card. you just like sweating out of every orifice on your body like while you're waiting for a trick to
1: do well and then when it hits you're just like oh i can finally be this sigh of relief not not anymore right like certainly earlier on but now it's like you know I, I, every show is like planning a heist mm-hmm. and you know if you've if you've done it a thousand times, right, you're gonna be relaxed. You yes. know what you're doing, you know the layout of the bank. Yeah. Right. You know where all you know oh, where the this guards are. Such a all good analogy. Walk. But yes. it's literally like that, right? Because you're trying to get away with this thing in front of, you know, a hundred security cameras all glued on you. Yeah. And for me, the like the tense moments, the moments where I sweat, as you eloquently put it, out of all my orifices – Um For me, that's when I'm in a new bank, right? If I'm performing in an environment that is wholly unfamiliar to me, or if I'm doing an act that is brand new, right, you know, then the nerves start to come back a little bit, you know, and then I start to feel it. But, you know, like anything else, if you do it a hundred times, you know, it's going to be in your body. Yeah. So
0: without giving too much away, and you can take a moment to think about this if you want, I... I would love to know a little more about like the preparation that goes into some of your bigger, more like grandiose moments. You know, I think that the big question that's always on everyone's mind is does he know his subjects before speaking with them? Is this person a plant? Not just for you, but any sort of magician that has like a stage show, it's always like, Oh, that person in the audience must be a plant. It, Is there a way that we can touch upon how much prep work you do to make things appear to be seamless without giving away your tricks of the trade?
1: Yes. So that's, first of all, you're, you're hitting on some really, really good, interesting, just like debates, even within the art form. Thank you! You're welcome. Um... And, you know, so there's all these questions, right? Is it, is it unethical to use stooges or plants, as you can call them either? Stooges. Stooges. Like stooges. stooges. <laughs> uh, is it unethical to use stooges? Is it cheating to use editing if you're doing a TV thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and my answer to that is you want to give the – I, I don't know where the line is. You know, I, I draw it for myself. I don't use plants. Um, I just don't think that's interesting. It's not interesting to like I get bored very easily. You mm-hmm. know, I do this job because it's fun for me. Yeah. Right. And if I wanted to just do a show full of plants, I would just write a play. Right. Right. Like to me, like I <laughs> yeah. do this because I cause I get off on the adrenaline yeah. of getting away with the thing on stage. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, so so calling out a plant and having them just, you know, say the thing I want them to say, that's fucking boring yeah. for me. Yeah. Um I also think that. There is an unwritten agreement between you and the audience, and that unwritten agreement, almost like it's almost like writing like murder mysteries. Like I don't know if you read mysteries or if you ever like watched murder mystery movies, but I I grew up on a lot of that stuff and I love that stuff. And there's nothing worse than getting to the end, getting to the twist, and realizing like, oh, I never had a fucking chance. Yeah, right. Like they didn't drop the clues. Like this was, you know, they just they just you know threw in this plot twist that I was never gonna write the, the yeah. most satisfying. Mysteries are always the ones where the twist comes and you go, ah, god damn it, it was there the whole time. Yes, right. You're like, so I, right. You don't want to find it. You don't want to get ahead of the writer. You don't want to win. You want to lose, but you're you want to so lose fairly.
0: Right. You want to lose fairly and like just by a little bit, and just by a little, just like you were almost little. there, right?
1: And so, like, like to me, the, as an audience member, the most satisfying magic is when you're like, oh, okay, I get it, I get it, I get yes. it. Wait, what? Right, like yes. you, you, you know, you know the thread. You know that the thread must be holding the woman, or the—I shouldn't say. See, I'm already yeah. using gender, <laughs> bullshit old stereotypes bad, of magic. But bad. whoever's being floated, right. levitated, right? Right. Um, but, right? You, you, your brain's going. Okay, I know, I know. There's got to be wires. I know. There's got to be wires. I know. There's got to be wires. And then the performer passes a hoop, yeah, right, a solid hoop, and you're just like, "Well, fuck me." Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. You know that's that's satisfying, so. You know, I I think using plants kind of violates that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Instead, I try to create, I try to create that sense of seamlessness by layering methods. You know, I think the strongest magic is where you use multiple methods on top of each other, so that it's just impossible to dissect it because one part of the trick rules out this other part of the trick. Hmm. Um, and I think that's how you achieve some of like the strongest moments of of wonder.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the séance because I do think you you clearly have this knowledge of people wanting to be brought together into this communal environment and they want to be involved and they want to bond with the people that they're surrounded by. The
1: séance is so interesting because it, it really went through a lot of evolutions. I've been I've been doing that show every Halloween season for about 4 or 5 years. Oh no way. Yeah. Um, and, and it very much started just as this like weird little site specific piece. I did a a little bed and breakfast in Williamsburg called the urban cowboy. And they had this like barn that they wanted me to do a show and it felt like the perfect fit. And, you know, originally it started very much as just this kind of kitschy. I'm just, I want to do a spooky seance. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and, and little by little, I sort of ended up chipping away at a lot of the, um, cheekiness of it. And kind of becoming more interesting in like what it could actually be about because to me seances are really really i I love that whole history i'm fascinated by it but the one thing i didn't want to do was create i didn't want to create a show that people walked away thinking that it was possible to pay money to talk to the dead because i I find that to be immoral and gross yes and i didn't want to encourage somebody to seek that elsewhere at the same time i didn't want to do a show that was took itself so unseriously you know I, i wasn't interested in doing the haunted mansion ride either where it's so obviously <laughs> yeah. cartoonish. Yeah. And so finding that middle ground was like next to impossible. It was it's hard. It's very very hard to walk that line. You kind of have to pick a direction in certain moments. Um and then during the um third season of the show. I might be getting that wrong, but I believe during the third season of that show, I was in the process of rewriting it and my aunt passed away um, who I was very, very, very close to, and I have a very small family, so, you know, all Holocaust Jews, so (laughs) not, not a lot of us, um, and so, you know, my aunt who I grew up, who I grew up with, and who I was very, very close with, passed away, and that was my, really my first, um, painful, painful experience of, of death. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I just turned 30, and so I'm very, very lucky that I've had very few, but clapping not for the death, but for you. Oh, I was gonna say, like,
0: clapping for death, clapping for death, it's inevitable. Um, no, clapping for uh, you entering we're the world. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, so, thank you. Um, You're welcome, but yeah, so, so th- that moment really clarified what I wanted, t- you know, for me, clarified like what what it was about this show that I'd always been interested in, even if I couldn't articulate it before, yeah, which was the realization that like because there was a, my my aunt uh had gone into a, a a coma and so there was a lot that I didn't get to say yeah um and there's more to that story but you know I had this moment this realization after she passed of like oh yeah like if somebody could convince me beyond doubt that like for a, for for all the money in my checking account I could have an hour conversation with her through yeah, them and you do could it. without miss, without fucking missing a beat. Yeah. Right? And I know better. And yeah. I would yeah, if they could convince me absolutely, right? Yeah. Like cuz cuz it's playing off that deepest, you know, part of you. Yeah. Um and and it's it's taking advantage of people's grief, right? And their pain. And so for me, I realized like the show I wanted to do was about not about whether ghosts are real, but not about whether mediumship is possible. I was interested in why does it why do we care? Right? Why are we why has that question persisted? What is it about seances that drew doctors and scientists and lawyers and politicians, right? People who should have known better. Yes. Why were they flocking, engaging? Right? Yeah. Why were they engaging? Why do we even in 2021 still engaged. i mean there's a very successful tv show called long island medium there sure is (laughs) and um you know i hear they're very litigious so we'll uh, that's all uh, (laughs) i we said enough about about that okay but back to you back to me back to Um, you uh yeah i mean but right like why is that show so incredibly popular Mm -hmm. you know and you know, I, I think there's a lot of different answers to that question, but that was what I was interested in exploring through the seance was what is it about what is it about this notion of the afterlife about the question of survival about there being some metaphysical part of us that lives on? what is it about that that we are seemingly obsessed with? yeah, that we can never even when we should know better can't seem to let go of and that was what that show kind of became about so
0: did you open up dialogues or Create monologues kind of talking about this from a more philosophic standpoint
1: yeah, you know the 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 show originally ended with a actual Victorian style seance with like the tambourine glowing in the dark and flying around the room and the table floating you know and all the wow. things you kind of want to see are you doing it this Halloween I don't know yet, probably yeah, not it's neither. it's I, I don't, I know, I know. Please. I, uh, mm. I want to go so badly. Mm, okay, I'll David. stop whining now. <laughs> so I'm doing Shits Creek now. Um, no, I want to do it. I want to do it. I just, A, I, I, I don't know that it's, I don't know how I'd feel doing it in a moment where people are still dying. Dying. You possibly. know, it, it yes. feels different. Yes um because that's when people become most vulnerable to these kinds of things right there's yes. always a spike in spiritualism whenever there's like a mass upheaval yes um and the second reason just you know being able to find a space and you know do a show it's hard of course, it's hard to in plan a month. for shows yeah. right now. Well, it's it's just the ground is st- we're still living through this right yeah. like the ground is still shifting so it is not over it's not over it's but not I, have over. A, I have another show opening um at a hotel that's going to be pretty exciting so i'm excited about that and it always makes the séance stuff always works its way into whatever i'm doing yes. it's always on my mind um, what was the original question? <laughs> um, just like
0: oh yeah, it was um, did you incorporate these like philosophical conversations about right, yes. death
1: into the show? So like, so the show used to end with um, you a know, Victorian the, the seance. very Victorian style sort of gimmicky séance, and I eventually got so tired of that because even when it even when it hit, at best you just got people screaming in their seats. Right, yeah. it was a haunted house ride. Yeah, I mean don't get me wrong, we had one person literally pee their chair, and that was pretty. Lit. Oh my god, that's so lit. Uh, yeah. That was pretty wild. All you want is the pee. All you want. I live for pee. I, <laughs> you know what? We'll, and we'll fix <laughs> you that in post. You, I live um, for pee. And
0: you just choked on it. Yeah, maybe not. No, we're keeping that in. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> you're a magician. You're allowed yeah, to be weird. That's you're absolutely allowed to be right. Free. If anything, it
1: makes it better. Yeah, um, I agree. So, <laughs> so, So I eventually got rid of that ending and eventually just started ending the show by giving people sort of five to six minutes in the dark to go through a moment while holding hands internally with somebody they'd lost and sort of bring that person into the room. Oh, I just got
0: chills. Yeah. uh,
1: Just mentally. Yeah. And the point being like, look, I don't know if these people live on in any way. I I don't know if ghosts exist. I don't know if there's an afterlife. What I do know is that this is a way we can keep these people alive right yeah. like and so i created a moment in the show where people just got to share about the people that they had you know lost or the people they were hoping would come through and you know regardless of whether or not you know a, a séance is possible regardless of whether or not you know the soul lives on i i do know that we can keep people with us and i think that is through Remembering them through sharing uh, them with others, right, and creating sort of communal space for them and mm-hmm. and honoring them in that way, and you know, I I try I event the show, the show eventually became much more about that, um, and that sort of. Uh, i guess philosophical question as you put it
0: no i just genuinely got goosebumps i that's why i think
1: it was the pee, wasn't it it was the pee. Yeah. I just thought
0: i thought about you and your obsession with the pee, and i was just like i can't contain <laughs> myself as we both drink more water drink more water um no you know i again my love of magic has always had a lot to do with the fact that you guys are in such a powerful position being able to create these really raw, you know, psychological experiences, but doing them in a way that people don't necessarily know that it's happening until it's happening. Like when you go to a therapist's office, you trudge over there, you turn on your zoom camera now, and you're just like, all right, this is going to be 45 minutes of me just talking about myself and having to unpack the trauma. And like, you know what to expect and you kind of know that you're going to feel crappy after it. But I think having this opportunity for release and for connection and for reflection in a kind of glamorous, over-the-top theatrical environment, that's really the way to do things. It's the same reason why people go to the movies a lot of the time. Like, You want to be having that emotional experience in the company of a lot of other people. You just don't necessarily want somebody looking at you in the eye and going like, so how do you feel about that? You know what I'm getting at? Like, I I think that you really, like, yes, you're a performer, and and yes, you're a showman, but you're also in a really advantageous position to encourage people to think further outside the box or deeper within themselves than I think they otherwise would.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's art in general. I mean, it it opens us up in a different way, right? Yeah. It's the reason why you know i it's it's the reason why art can make such a difference yeah. in people's lives why it can literally change public perceptions right it's, it's the reason you know why you know shows you know representation matters so much right in media is we know that art makes a dent in people in their politics in their per- point of view in their biases in their you know their desires their attractions their dreams in a way that conversation doesn't in a way politics doesn't in a way you know even even oftentimes like our authority figures our our parental figures can't Mm -hmm. right like art can circumvent all of that and just pull a string in us yeah you know and so I think you know magic can induce that in a very um direct way because when you're in that state of astonishment when you're in that state of genuine childlike wonder I think you're open the way a child is open Yes, to new information to new ideas. Yes,
0: oh man, I would say let's drop the mic, but like I don't want to have to pay thousands of dollars for that damage. So let's that makes sense. Here, take your water bottle, take your water bottle. What are we doing? Just we're just dropping oh, it. We're just dropping on the water ground. ground. Oh, Make sure it's ground. tight. Ready, one, one two, two three.
1: three. Mic drop.
0: That's the mic drop moment, which I feel like you really deserve. Once again, my beautiful degenerate angels, my curious little cats and kittens, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Tales of Taboo. My name is Ali Weiss. You can contact me through email, DM, Twitter, TikTok, a scroll on a pigeon's foot. I am open to all of it. My email address is ali at aliweissworld.com that's too complicated, you can also stick to Allie at gmail.com. All my social medias are at Allie Hate letters, love notes, uh, vague threats. I love it all please, if you have a spare 30 seconds, if you can go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review, it means the world to me. I try really hard not to sell out to annoying sponsors of like CBD gummies and <laughs> erectile dysfunction medication because I know none of you want to hear another show that's promoting that. So the best way that I can grow is through engaging my community. It doesn't take very long and it means it's a excuse me, means a lot to me. I'm choking on my tongue because I'm so overwhelmed with emotion, but seriously, it would mean a lot. And it's basically like guaranteed good karma for the next hundred years. So do it. I love you all. I am very excited to see and hear from you next week. And until then, be good.